Without a good night's sleep, it's hard to make good food choices. Knowing that, should we be prioritizing other healthy lifestyle habits over diet when it comes to our mental wellness? We sat down with internationally known health expert, Dr. David Katz, and asked him what's most important and if some health habits like sleep, exercise, and stress management are really more important than what we eat. Let's dive right in. You may have noticed that this is a longer episode. I know I tend to steer clear of longer episodes of podcasts. It's just too much of a commitment, but this is one, I've listened to it a couple of times. This is one that I think you could start and stop in little segments and you'll just jump right back in. Our guest today is Dr. David Katz. Dr. Katz is the esteemed founding director of Yale Griffin Prevention Research Center. He is the author of many books, including How to Eat and the Truth About Food. He's appeared as a medical contributor on Good Morning America. His accomplishments are almost too long to mention, and we are beyond thrilled and honored to have him here on the show. I told him a few minutes ago that I was still pinching myself that we are actually talking to him today. So, Dr. Katz, welcome. Caroline, I told you guys before we got started, I didn't know there was no video and I combed my hair. And, uh, you know, again, 10 seconds, I won't get back. So I'm going to call my mom later today so she can see my hair is combed. I'll get credit for it. I think that's perfect. You could also snap a selfie and we will post it in the show notes. How's that sound? (laughs) Now I'm starting to worry I didn't comb it well enough. So, Dr. Katz, this morning as I was, you know, preparing to get a chance to talk to you, I was I was trying to think back actually to the first time that I met you in person. I want to say it was like circa 2009 or 2010. I was still working at Eating Well magazine. You were getting ready to launch your food scoring system in grocery stores at the time, but it seems like you have done so much since then. We talked about the books that you've published. I was telling Carolyn a little bit about how you launched True Health Initiative, and it sounds like you have some other projects in the works. Anything in particular you want to share? Well, first of all, Briarly, I, I have greatly appreciated uh, our friendship and collaboration over the years, and I know it's been a long time, but you know, I'm absolutely terrible at remembering what happened when. I, my wife has to tell me all of that, and, and it's gotten so much worse with the pandemic. Because the, the last year has sort of been twisted into knots, hasn't it? You know, in pandemic time, a week is a year and a year is a lifetime. So everything's gotten even weirder. But I, I was always terrible about that. So you could have told me it was five years or 25 years. And I would just nod my head and say, that sounds right. But I, I know it's been a long time. We've done a lot together. And uh, I greatly appreciate you and your work. And, and it's a pleasure, of course, to meet Carolyn in this context. So, yeah, I've been busy. But you know, the, the real reason for the many elements in my career, uh, 30 years uh, in one capacity or another at Yale, uh, most of that time running the Prevention Research Center, um, and, and now and doing many other things along with academic medicine during all that time, and now actually leaving academic medicine to be, of all things, an entrepreneur and run my own company, the, the motivations are always the same. The, the simple fact is, if the mission is to add years to lives, add life to years. In other words, to advance the human condition by propagating both longevity and vitality, the avoidance of all chronic disease, and to do that in a way that's sustainable and good for the planet, we are losing the war. Uh, when I started out, you know, I finished my training in internal medicine, preventive medicine, nearly 30 years ago. I, I was committed to reversing the trends in obesity and chronic disease, and since that time, they've gotten worse. 
So, you know, I think any of us being completely honest about our efforts needs to say not enough. We have to keep shopping for something new, something more powerful. So I, I keep doing that, uh, you know, in the hope that that ultimately our collective efforts will be enough, that we will make that difference, that we will eliminate the, the scourges of chronic diseases that people don't need to get, that we will cut down dramatically on premature death, and that we'll do it in a way that's good for people and planet alike. All of that is possible, and, and we can get into that to the extent the conversation warrants. And some of what I've done you know, since, over the years, uh, and, and of course we, we've collaborated many times since, since that first encounter, but as you said, founded the True Health Initiative, which is an effort to make science sense and the global expert consensus about diet and lifestyle as medicine common knowledge. Uh, I think most people believe that experts disagree about everything. It's not true. I think most people believe that everything in nutrition is unsettled and they have to tune into the morning show tomorrow to find out what diet is right this week. And that's not true. And you know, there's a vast amount of settled knowledge and we're trying to make that common knowledge so people are empowered to take action because in the absence of reliable knowledge there is no power to take action and we're trying to fix that and then my my latest venture uh and this does go back now a number of years in collaboration with a who's who in nutrition is to address the fact that in medicine as in business we don't tend to manage what we don't routinely measure. And the simple fact is, as important as diet is, and it's the single leading predictor variable for all-cause mortality in the modern world, we almost never measure it. So, you know, it would be as if we talked a lot about blood pressure and it's really important, and unless you control it, it can lead to heart attack and stroke. But the blood pressure cuff had never been invented, and nobody's blood pressure is ever measured or tracked. So that's how it's been with diet, and, and it's because the tools for measuring diet are so onerous and memory-dependent and take a lot of time and are very frustrating. So we actually fix that, and people can learn more at dietid.com. That's the company, DietID. We've invented an image-based approach to dietary assessment where comprehensive details can be generated effortlessly, elegantly, easily. It's even fun in about 60 seconds. So we think that's a game-changer. So I've been working on that for about the past five years. And is that something that both consumers and health professionals can use, or is it targeted towards one or the other? Great question. It's currently targeted toward consumers via health professionals. We think it's really good to have a dietitian, uh, an expert nutrition uh, advisor in the mix. And so we license to businesses. And so we're licensing diet ID into health systems, into wellness programs, but also to individual practitioners, dietitians, health coaches, physicians doing lifestyle medicine, telemedicine platforms. So ultimately, it's designed for the consumer. The consumer is our end user. But this would reach you as a consumer via your health professional or your employer or some other program that you're involved in. You know it better than I do. It's really challenging to accurately capture what somebody is consuming and and to simplify that for us for the the patient and also for the person giving them advice is i mean exciting it, it's yeah. it's crucial yeah so our 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 mantra is diet is a vital sign and 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 we're not the only one so august 26 2019 so just a year and a half ago roughly there was an op-ed in the new york times 
by Darius Mosafarian, who is the Dean of Nutrition at Tufts, mm -hmm. and Dan Glickman, former Secretary of Agriculture. And the title of that op-ed, which I commend to everybody who hasn't seen it yet, it, it's quite stark. It is, our food is killing too many of us. And what they do in that op-ed is cite the primary literature indicating that indeed poor diet quality is the leading cause of premature death in the United States and that it actually causes over half a million, over 500,000 premature deaths every year. Now, you know, you think about the timing of this conversation. It is during the pandemic. We've marked the grim milestone of more than 500,000 losses to the pandemic, and, and we mourn that. But there's another pandemic that hides in plain sight, and it does that same damage every year. More than 500,000 losses to poor diet quality, premature deaths every year. So it's received high-level attention, and the first thing that Mosafarian and Glickman say is the remedy is that we should start to capture nutrition in everyone's electronic health record. If we flash forward from that op-ed the better part of a year to just a few months ago, there was a position statement by the American Heart Association published in their flagship journal circulation saying that diet is so important to health outcomes in cardiology, it should be captured in every clinical encounter, and we need tools that will enable us to do exactly that. Of course, we have invented the tool that will enable that, and that's how it ought to be. Uh, you know, again, diet ID is to diet as blood pressure cuffs are to blood pressure. We've got to measure this routinely, know what diet is, know the gap between where it is and where it ought to be so we can start making the journey from here to there. Tremendous value proposition in guiding people to better diet quality. And one of the things that I like so much about what we built, and, and it's all predicated on a comprehensive image-based diet map of, of real-world diets in North America, is that we can be agnostic about the goal diet as long as it's high quality. So people can say, well, the kind of diet I'm most interested in is vegan or vegetarian or pescatarian or flexitarian, or I've heard great things about Mediterranean, or I want to try a low-carb diet. They're actually high and low-quality versions of all of those, and we stratify them objectively using the Healthy Eating Index 2015 so we can say we can help you get to a much better diet and consequently better health and help you do it your way because no diet is going to help you feel better, live better, enjoy more longevity, vitality if you don't actually eat that way. And in order to eat that way, you've, you've got to be willing to. And that, that means a big part of personalizing nutrition is giving people choice so they can select a diet that will A, address their health objectives, but B, also be compatible with their lifestyle and preferences. It's really important when, whether it's writing an article or giving advice in, you know, in the world of nutrition, to meet people where they're at. And that's what you're doing. You're meeting them where they're at with, with this, but then giving them the tools to kind of up their game and improve their diet. And that's, you know, I think that that's where you really get to see improvements or it is when you don't try and totally overhaul somebody. Right. No, I, I agree completely. Uh, you know, on the one hand, there is a basic theme of feeding Homo sapiens well, and it, it's not negotiable, right? So ultra-processed food, bad for us. We tend to eat too many animal foods, too few plant foods. Uh, drinking soda, not so good. Drinking water, really good. You know, there, there are fundamentals, and they pertain to all of us. But what is really well established with the weight of scientific evidence is a theme, not one narrow prescriptive diet. 
And a whole variety of diets are all good variants on that theme. And I totally agree. I think our job is to empower people with knowledge of the theme and opportunity within the spectrum of choices. And that's personalizing nutrition. And, you know, it's being true, truthful about the science. It's not giving away uh, everything. You know, again, there are a lot of silly fad diets that are off the theme, and, and we don't include those. But there's a very wide array of, cho wide array of choice that is compatible with the theme, and it blends the best of science with the best of personalized opportunity. And I, I think that's the way to go. I so appreciate how just unintimidating you make you know, eating healthier feel and look like. And I appreciated that when I went to the, the True Health Initiative website. So many people think there is a exact prescription that everyone must follow. And, you know, like Riley said, you really are meeting people where they are. I also loved on the True Health Initiative website, um, something that I saw that I, I know I'm going to get this quote slightly wrong, but it was something to the effect of think health experts can't agree, think again. And I love it because you brought all these recognized health experts together to help you with this. And I know some are working with you on the diet ID as well. That's right. Well, thank you, Caroline. And I know we're going to pivot this conversation to talking about lifestyle practices and, and, and mental health, which of course has been a challenge for all of us during the duress of this past year. And, and I think that's really important. But it's actually true about experts in public health, preventive medicine, across the gamut of these various lifestyle practices we'll be discussing. There's massive global consensus about the importance of sleep, about managing stress, about exercise, about avoiding toxins like tobacco or excess alcohol, about social connections, as well as about diet. The reason I focus so much of my career on nutrition is not because I like food more than the next guy. I, I like food. <laughs> everybody likes everybody likes good food. It's for two reasons. You know, one, it was pretty clear even 30 years ago that that diet it was already on the short list of the most important predictors of every health outcome that mattered. But it was pretty clear the writing was on the wall at the start of my career that it was poised to become the most important because everybody eats. And although tobacco at the time was the leading predictor of premature death, rates of smoking were going steadily down. And I was hopeful we would see the day when, when tobacco is consigned to the dustbin of bad historical ideas and it's gone for good. But we were clearly headed in that direction. And you know, today, sadly, we still have tobacco as a public health scourge, but it, it affects less than 20% of the whole population whereas everybody eats. So the, the universal influence of diet suggested that's going to be most important, as indeed it is now. And then the other issue with diet is it's a vastly more complicated variable than any of the others. Uh, you know, there's not a massive amount of debate about, you know, is exercise good or bad? Is there one best way to exercise? There's some. There's some debate, and some people favor aerobic versus uh, resistance. Some people favor resistance over aerobic. You know, they're, they're in, inevitably, in a field where there's an opportunity to, to sell stuff, uh, you're, you're going to get some ardent differences of opinion. But still, the public's not confused about exercise. Everybody knows that walking is good, and running is good, and swimming is good, and biking is good. And it doesn't really matter if you know hiking or biking is better, as long as you do one of them, and it's whichever of the two you like better or you do both at different times. I think most people know that. Everybody knows sleep is important. It doesn't mean we do it well, but we know it matters. 
Uh, everybody knows that, you know, not being stressed out is a good thing. You know, so diet is the place where people get lost and confused. And it was pretty clear, again, even 30 years ago, that that was a risk. So I, I dedicated my career preferentially to that variable. But as we are going to discuss now, all those other variables matter tremendously. And they're interactive. Um, you know, just as a quick for instance, I fully endorse the importance of relaxation. And, and um, that could be achieved, for example, with meditation. And I'll be honest with you both. I really wish I could meditate. Uh, you know, I, I need I need my friend Deepak to you know to do something with me because you know, something's clearly broken. I've tried. I'm terrible at meditation. I, I spend my time trying to meditate, thinking how many emails could I be answering now? How many emails could I be answering? I mean, I just can't get out of that. So I'm terrible. This makes However, me feel so much better. <laughs> <laughs> I'm terrible. I've tried. My wife keeps telling me to try again. I'm just, I'm just natively awful at, at meditation. Deepak, I'm, I'm sorry. But uh, I love exercise. I love it. I, I do it every day. I love to exercise outdoors. I love to hike with my dogs. I love to ride my horse. I love to ski. I, you know, so I exercise indoors in my own, uh, the gym I have in my house every day just to make sure I get some, an intense workout in. I love it. It clears my mind. I'm often composing things while working out. In fact, the, the method for diet ID, I figured out one day while on the elliptical. Uh, you know, I just had that 40 minutes of, of you know, liberating exertion. It cleared my mind. I was wrestling with the fact that we're never going to manage diet at scale if we don't figure out how to measure it routinely. And the whole thing kind of unfolded in my head like origami in reverse and the rest is history. So, I, you know, I think it's a great way actually to enhance productivity, but it relieves my stress. So, you know, for me, these are two things on the list of lifestyle practices that are really important to mental health. One would be stress reduction and the other would be exercise. But my rebuttal to that is actually for me, exercise is stress reduction. And that's a beautiful thing because I'm double dipping. You know, essentially I, I can tick two boxes while doing just one thing and that much more so if I can do the exercise outside in nature, I can get into the, the woods for a hike. Because there, you know, we have this this native affinity for natural places. Uh, I, I think many of us don't realize it, living the way we do in the modern world. But but it's true. It's strong. It's a it's a byproduct of evolutionary biology, and we can talk more about that. But you know, when you can get exertion and connect to nature, incredible mental health benefit from that. And 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 it's measured, you know, not just in people saying, "Wow, that was nice. I feel better." It's measured biochemically. You can actually detect elevation in endorphins and um, calming neurotransmitters like like GABA and serotonin, both with exercise and with exposure to nature. So the, these things are are really tremendously valuable to overall health. And the beauty of the True Health Initiative, Caroline, is we, we've got hundreds of world leading experts in public health, preventive medicine, lifestyle medicine nutrition, exercise science, sleep science, and, and mental health, all coming together to say, we agree about the fundamental formula. And so exactly as you say, think no two health experts agree about the formula, think again. We actually have the proof. Hundreds of experts, um, you know, including massively influential people, members of our council include 
deans of schools, chairs of departments, CEOs of, of major healthcare institutions, household names like Sanjay Gupta, uh, all willing to stand up in public and be counted to say the fundamentals of, of getting lifestyle right to maximize years in life, life in years, not contentious. We agree. This is how we all choose to live. This is how we apply the, the, the incredible value of that to ourselves and, and to our families. And they sign off on the fundamentals of healthy eating, but they also sign off on the importance of connecting that to the other dots, physical activity, being in nature, avoiding toxins, getting enough sleep, managing stress, social connections. I, I sum those up, by the way, as feet, forks, fingers, sleep, stress, and love. So I, I was uh, past president of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, and I, I think I developed uh, that, uh, I'm not sure it quite qualifies as a mnemonic, uh, when I was president, so I, I could rattle these off as the, the six cylinders of the lifestyle medicine engine, but feet is physical activity, forks is dietary patterns, fingers, as in don't use them to bring cigarettes to your mouth, sleep, get enough, stress, don't have too much, and love, meaning social connections, not just romantic love, but friendship. All love is good love. We are social animals. We need one another. Feet, forks, fingers, sleep, stress, and love. I love that. Uh, yeah, that is fantastic. I will pivot for a moment here because you touched, you just touched on so many, so many different things. And it was really, it was really helpful to hear kind of what drew you into nutrition. You know, there was a, a statistic that Carolyn and I recently came across from Kaiser Family Foundation that said, the number one most debilitating disease in the U.S. is mental health disorders and substance abuse. And that really, really struck me because here on, you know, on our podcast, we're, we're talking a lot about the intersection between diet and mental health and the growing research that is coming out about the, you know, the benefits of what you eat for your mental health or the detriments of what you eat yeah. for your mental health. And almost simultaneously, Carolyn and I stumbled upon an article that you had written that really, really spoke to us. Yeah, in Sunbasket. So, you know, this whole season we've talked about the effect that food and diet and different nutritional components may have. We even talked about some eating approaches like fasting and just kind of what the research research may suggest or what we know or don't know. But we stumbled upon this quote from you that was in a Sunbasket article, and I love it because um, I don't. This is kind of how we we thought we need to talk to David to Dr. Katz about this just to get his more of his thoughts but it was it was this it, you said physical activity on a regular basis and adequate sleep have even stronger support than diet does for improved mental health benefits now we both completely know you are not saying that diet does not matter but i think we have also both seen in our own lives the importance of physical activity and adequate sleep and just how you've got to have those six components um, that you mentioned, but particularly, particularly these two. Yeah, I, they're, they're all really important. And, and let, let's, before I, I say why I think the case might be even stronger for sleep and exercise, let's first note diet supplies the construction material for the growing body of our beloved children. And then once we're mature, it provides the construction material our bodies use every day to reconstitute themselves. And our bodies are much like that, that famous river that's never the same twice because the water keeps flowing. Well, so do we. 
you know, our cells keep replacing themselves, our enzymes do, uh, our hormones do, our neurotransmitters do, all of that needs to be reconstituted every day to the tune of hundreds of millions of component parts. And there's only two ways the body can get the building material. It, it can cannibalize itself, break down one tissue to build another. Uh, and you know, that's usually, unless it's a, a breakdown of fat during intentional weight loss, that's usually a bad situation. And the other is to get it from diet. And so if you think of it that way, you, you basically can almost compare what happens each day with our bodies, our health, and our diets to a construction site where the, the materials are being supplied so that, you know, the house can be built. Well, you know, I mean, if you got nothing but lumber, but you didn't have any roofing shingles, your roof will leak. If you got only wires, uh, but no lumber, you, you could do the electricity, but there'd be no structure, you know, on and on it goes, you need a balance. And that's absolutely true for the human body. In order to build healthy cells, healthy cell membranes, replenish our hormones, keep them in balance, replenish our immune system, which is made up of hardworking cells that get spent every day and cleared from the body, to replenish the lining of our gastrointestinal system, the lining of our skin, on and on it goes. You need a massive balanced supply of, of nutritional building blocks every day. Critically important, really important topic of discussion during the pandemic because diet obviously influences immune responses. You, you have to build that army of white blood cells. You, you have to reconstitute your immune system daily. You have to build all the chemical messengers. And then all of that is subject to the influence of, of hormones. And you have to rebuild those so that there's a balanced supply and, and on and on it goes. All the same is true of mental health. First of all, every hormone in the body has the potential to influence every other. The circulating quantities of almost everything uh, have the capacity to influence the health of the vasculature, which is carrying all that material, which in turn will influence the health of the brain because the brain is critically dependent on its blood supply every second. And there's the fact that we're reconstituting cell membranes every day, including cell membranes in our brains, in our nervous system. And the integrity of those cell membranes has a great deal to do with our mental health, our cognitive abilities, our equanimity, the you know, balance and mood, on and on it goes. All of that's critically dependent on diet. So absolutely, Caroline, as you say, that statement about the importance of sleep and exercise in no way diminishes the, the critical importance of diet. And, and again, if anything, you could argue, okay, diet is the foundation, it's the bedrock, it's the, it's the building material, literally. But, you know, the, the rapid influence of, of sleep and exercise is truly remarkable. So, you know, you can be really stressed out and you can go for a brisk walk or a run or a hike or a bike ride, you know, what, or Zumba or aerobic, you know, whatever, whatever your thing is, right? Just you do your thing, but you exert yourself, you sweat, you know, half an hour later, you could be feeling dramatically better. I mean, a, a literal 180, I mean, incredible mood stabilizing, mood enhancing effect. And some of that's biochemical, some of it's hormonal balance, some of it's probably purely psychological, just the gratification of it. And sleep is the same. I mean, I, I, I'm sure we've all, you know, we're hardworking people and there are stresses in our lives. We, we've had nights where we slept well. We've had nights where we slept badly. The difference is stunning. You know, you wake up after a really good night's sleep, your mind is clear and sharp, you have enthusiasm, you're eager. And when you confront the stresses of the day, you confront them with much greater strength, you know, just a lot more resilience. They just don't feel all that bad because you feel capable of meeting them. 
I, I go through my day, and you know, running a startup company, for example, is, is stressful. If I have, you know, fairly average day, but I had a really lousy night's sleep, everything's overwhelming. And then because everything's overwhelming, you know, I sort of, I, I'm, I get beat up, I get gloomy, and then I go into the next thing, starting out a bit gloomy, and then that thing is harder, that meeting, that, you know, that challenge is harder than it should be, and it gets worse and worse and worse. And it was all set in motion by not getting a good night's sleep. So, you know, I, I think the immediate effects of that, and again, we can talk about the physiology because it, it reverberates through every organ system. It reverberates through the, the, the workings of our circulatory system, of our endocrine system. Uh, really, every system is affected. Uh, you can even alter your microbiome with exercise and sleep. And, you know, I think everybody's heard these days how incredibly important the microbiome is to every aspect of human health. There are more bacteria living in and on us than there are cells in our bodies, probably by an order of magnitude. So we're sort of a rounding error in our own skin. So the health of that, that community within is absolutely crucial to our mental health, every aspect of us. Uh, and they're influenced by all the same factors, including diet, exercise, and sleep. So I, I think it's the immediacy of exercise and sleep that makes it easier to establish evidence and then publish that evidence, which is what I was referring to. You look at the peer-reviewed literature, the effects of exercise on mood, easy to establish. The effects of sleep on mood, easy to establish. The effects of diet on mood, at least as important, but probably playing out generally in a slightly longer timeline, a bit, a bit of slow motion effect, if you will, a little harder to establish. It's the immediacy. And, you know, I even like to kind of do so-called experiments on myself and just watch how my mood changes or my outlook changes by going outside for a walk or getting on the Peloton or just saying, you know, I'm going to handle this tomorrow after a good night of sleep. I feel like sleep is one that so many, perhaps one of the most overlooked health habits by people. It's almost like an adequate good night of sleep is almost sometimes even seen as indulgent. And I hate that because I think maybe it's partly me just getting into my 40s, but I realize more and more and partly from my research reading as well, but it's so, so vital. Like I, I can't, I can't function. Like you said, I, it's harder for me to deal from mental health uh, perspective, if I don't get adequate sleep, it's harder to make those healthier food choices that you know you need to make. Do you see that it's one that people just kind of take for granted or don't give enough priority to, or, or what's your take? Yeah, well, th th there's a lot of important stuff there, Caroline. So, so first, you know, as you said, if you sleep well, you do a better job choosing the right foods, right? I mean, you, you sort of have better self-restraint, you, you're more thoughtful. That's a critical point. So I, I mentioned this before, but, but you're reemphasizing it now. The components of lifestyle as the best possible medicine, you know, the, the, the tonic most likely to, to gift you vitality and longevity, a bounty of years in life, a bounty of life in years. Uh, in order to achieve that, you really want the full formula, but it's not as if these things are siloed. If you sleep well, you have more energy. If you have more energy, it's easier to exercise. If you sleep well and exercise, you have better self-esteem. If you have better self-esteem, it's easy to suddenly care about making better dietary choices. You want to feed yourself well. If you feed yourself well, you feel better, you have more energy, it's easier to exercise, you're more likely to sleep well. 
Uh, when you're feeling good about yourself, you're exercising, eating well, sleeping well, you're much more interested in socializing and cultivating, the, you know, on and on it goes. So, so it, lifestyle as medicine is, is not only the gift that keeps on giving, which it clearly is, but it, it's the gift that feeds into itself. The more you do, the easier it is to do. And, and all of these dots connect. I, I think that really is incredibly important. Um, and then, yeah, I, you know, I think the, the issue of immediacy of effect does differentiate um, exercise, does differentiate sleep. And that may help overcome the neglect these tend to face. But sadly, you know, the, the components of this formula do get different levels of respect. And I, I think you're right. I think sleep traditionally is the one that people are most dismissive of because sleep feels like downtime. It feels like, you know, that's the time I can't do anything. At least exercise, okay, you know, I don't really have time to exercise, but I know I should and I'll make the time. So actually a few comments. First, I, I do sympathize with people who are saying, enough, you guys, just enough, leave me alone. Don't tell me one more thing I have to do. And I sort of feel that way about the dentist. <laughs> you know, I'm a, I'm a preventive medicine specialist, but I, I'm going to make a confession. And I don't know if this, this may be the first time I've ever disclosed this in public. So I, I can only hope my dentist isn't listening in, but I, I don't floss. I don't floss, you know, for a couple of reasons. One, you know, it always makes my gums bleed. I hate that, which probably means I need to floss, just like I need to meditate. So I've two confessions, right, in one podcast. I've already <laughs> confessed I don't meditate, even though I should. I also don't floss. I'm a terrible person. I'm so ashamed. Uh, you know, it's just, okay, enough. Look, I, I, you know, I try to prioritize sleep. I, you know, I try to prioritize relationships. I eat optimally. I exercise every day. Um, I don't indulge in any toxins. You know, I, I've got all the formula going, but I don't floss because I've got to draw the line. So I just want to let people listening know I respect the fact that we've all got to draw the line somewhere, right? But I definitely wouldn't draw the line and put sleep on the other side. It's so monumentally important. And, and that's why, you know, there are many other elements we could embellish feet, forks, fingers, sleep, stress, and love with. Uh, flossing might be one of them, I suppose. <laughs> but, but, you know, again, I think everything after that, that critical form is a little less important. Sleep is so important. And so I would encourage people to think of sleep not as downtime. Um, you know, maybe, maybe Star Trek fans will, will remember Seven of Nine and, and the idea that the, the, the Borg, if you remember those folks, they, they didn't sleep, but they, they reconstituted themselves. Uh, they had these rejuvenation um, modules. That's what sleep is for us. We, we reconstitute ourselves in sleep. A lot of body repair happens in sleep. The mi microbiome is reconstituted in sleep. Um, cells are replenished in sleep. So much of what the body has to do every day to wake up and be intact the next day actually happens during sleep. It, it may be downtime relative to the things you do during the day. It's not downtime for your body. It's crucial time. There's a lot going on. And I think if we understood that better, you know, it, essentially, you know, if everybody had a mini med school and, and you know, had, had deep insights into what the body's doing on the inside when you're not doing anything on the outside, we'd say, wow, um, you know, absolutely, the, the factory needs all of these, you know, the, these components addressed. And I need this phase of my daily routine to allow for that. So it's not downtime. It's critical replenishment, rejuvenation, restore all the vital component time. Every assembly line in your body will cease to function as it should if you do not allow for that. And what it makes me think of, Carolyn, I think of many patients over the years 
you know, I'd, I'd be giving my customary advice about the importance of feet, forks, fingers, sleep, stress, and love. And, you know, they, they would come back with something like, you know, I, I just, you know, I'm a busy person. I have a demanding job. I just don't have time to blank. And, you know, maybe it would be sleep enough or, or maybe it would be exercise. And my answer was always the same. You know, I hear you. I, I respect where that response is coming from. But I'll tell you the truth. I don't have time not to. Because if I didn't exercise, I wouldn't be nearly as productive. If I didn't get enough sleep, I wouldn't be nearly as productive. I get, I get more out of me every day because I give my body what it needs to fire on all cylinders. I give my mind what it needs to be at my disposal. Uh, you know, there's no question that, that a, a healthy, well-rested, well-tended brain is our greatest vital resource. And a brain feeds on sleep exercise, optimal diet, social connections, um, avoiding excesses of stress and toxins. And, and then, you know, you take care of your brain, it takes care of you, it's at your disposal, it does the work you ask of it every day. And, and I truly believe that, you know, now decades into my career, uh, I, you know, and still working very hard and long hours and with miles to go before I sleep, my productivity is highly dependent on the lifestyle medicine formula. So I, I, I think you're quite right. People don't respect sleep the way they should. They view it as downtime. It, it's downtime for some of your body functions. It is on time. You know, just, it's, it, I, I, let me digress quickly. I, I've been, I mentioned hiking. So I've been hiking the New England woods near my home quite a lot this winter. And we had a whole stretch of, of weeks where we were getting a little bit of fresh snow every night. And I loved all the tracks in the snow. Uh, I mean, just incredible traffic in these woods, you know, foxes and raccoons and, and skunks and deer and coyotes. And, and you'd never know about it because most of this activity is nocturnal. And when there isn't snow, the tracks are barely visible or visible at all. And so this is, you know, it, it all happens in the dark and, and, and you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a world apart from us. The snow is the great gossip of the wood. It tells you everything, you know, all this private activity is made public. You, you hike the next day and say, my goodness, it was a traffic jam. There's Grand Central Station in here last night. Um, and, and our bodies are like that. So, you know, it's a whole different suite of characters that's really active during sleep than are active during the day. It's, it's not less activity. It's just a whole bunch of different stuff happening. So we've got to give our bodies and our minds that time. It's critical time. These are critical functions. And, you know, I, I do think attitudes about sleep are changing, but I do, we're a nation of insomniacs. We have a ways to go to fix the, the respect sleep really does deserve. So you mentioned the woods. So I've got to ask because during COVID, let me preface this by saying, I know you don't know me, but I'm not really what you'd call an outdoorsy girl. I, um, <laughs> I love to work out, but pre-COVID, I had no problem saying I'm hitting the gym with air conditioning. <laughs> During COVID, you know, we're trapped at home. And so I did get out more to do my exercise. I had to, to take walks and runs and that kind of thing. But I also started getting outside in the afternoons to work on my patio. And I began to see a change on those days that I did that. Well, let me say I saw a difference on the days that I didn't do that. My outlook on life was totally different on those days I didn't get outside and not a positive way. And my patience and approach to parenting, I'm telling on myself here, was 
nothing like it was compared to the days where I did get outside. I, I think if, if I can confess about flossing, you you, you could you could you can come clean too about parental impatience. It's only fair. It was so noticeable and just so overt. Um, and I thought, you know, yes, I may be getting a little bit of vitamin D, but you can't write all that I am seeing off to vitamin D. So Briarly and I joke that when we really want to dig into the research on something, but you know, kind of busy, then our our um, method is to pitch it to somebody, and hopefully it turns into an assignment, and then we're you know we we've got to dig into the research. Um, and so that's what we do when we really want to know more about that. So I pitched that as an article to Eating Well late last summer when I just I was like, this is so noticeable. I've got to know more. And, and it turns out there or it appears that there is a definite boost that you get from being outside, even if you're not exercising, just being outside. Some research suggested it was the green color. Others suggested it was changes in hormones. And I think it took COVID and being trapped in the house with my kids to make me really realize the noticeable difference. You've mentioned the outdoors a couple of times. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, it's it's a really interesting proposition. And and first of all, you know, just to respect the fact that you would not have described yourself as a, a woodsy or, you know, country girl. Um, yeah, I respect that. I, I have five grown children and I've got a couple who really love nature the way I do. And I've got a couple that would really rather be in a big city. Thank you very much. <laughs> and I, you know, that's okay. Um, and, and, you know, I, I think you can achieve equanimity and, and, and cognitive acuity and mental health and be firing all cylinders your way. You know, we started our conversation talking about, you know, there's more than one way to eat well and people should be empowered to choose. Similarly, there's more than one way to exercise. There's more than one way to relieve stress and people should again be empowered to choose. But, and, and this is important across all these variables, and we do tend to forget this. I think it's kind of a unique homo sapien arrogance that makes us think we're different from everything else in nature. We're not. We're a kind of animal. You know, we're a kind of animal with brains that from my point of view, maybe just the wrong size, so we cause all kinds of trouble. But you know, we're, we're kind of animal, and we're the same kind of animal. We're more alike than different. And we don't debate the fact, for example, that we all should breathe about the same amount of oxygen, you know, barring some extreme medical condition. There, there are medical conditions where you have to make adjustments. But you know, the population at large, we all breathe the Earth's atmosphere. Now, is that just a coincidence that you know, we all seem to do okay on that same partial pressure of oxygen? Of course not. It's adaptation. We, we adapted to the atmosphere of the planet where we have evolved. And so it's not a coincidence that the level of oxygen in Earth's atmosphere is the level of oxygen that allows us to thrive. Adaptation is crucially important. Well, then, you know, in for a penny, in for a pound, let, let's talk about all the different things we're adapted to. Well, you know, we, we're adapted to being outdoors in sunlight. We're adapted to having exposure to sun as a way of kind of guiding our circadian rhythms. Uh, we're adapted to sleeping when it's dark. Uh, you know, the, the cycles of, of light and dark have a powerful influence on the behavior of all animals, and we were once members of that group. We're adapted to like certain kinds of landscapes. Uh, you know, th this has been studied in psychology experiments many times. Almost all humans uh, have a calming um, experience when exposed to a body of water, a, a lake, a flowing river, a stream, the ocean. You know, and, and that's probably because it was a source of sustenance and comfort. 
um, for our ancestors. You know, you know, obviously, if you don't have access to fresh water, you're in big trouble. Uh, and often access to the seashore meant a, a likely supply of food. Most of us are extremely comforted if you get the landscape of an open savanna, so essentially wide open grassland and then clusters of trees, because that's probably our native habitat. And on and on it goes. So, you know, I think there are really profound reasons why, whether we are woodsy people or not woodsy people, being outdoors, getting exposure to sunlight, feeling the outdoor breeze on our skin, these things really do, they, they speak to us at an incredibly deep level. Sorry, my watch is, is chim chiming at me. Um, and, you know, what I think th that, that effect transcends personality differences and, and personal preferences because we are, we're the same kind of animal. So I, I think there are lots of different ways to pursue our, our best mental health. And I think it's perfectly reasonable that, that some of us might prefer a gym to the woods. Uh, but we also don't have to make that an absolute choice. And Carolyn, what you're describing, there's no reason for you to give up the gym. I think it's got a little complicated <laughs> during COVID, but you'll, you'll get back to the gym. But you, you may have realized, you know, I want to combine my workout at the gym with, you know, maybe I'll take my laptop uh, outside certain times of day when the weather's good and make that a routine practice because there's something really good and, and calming and restorative about, you know, just being outside, just feeling the outdoor air and the breeze and, and the sunlight. And absolutely, it's not limited to vitamin D. Uh, as I say, there's psychology experiments that, that show different landscapes, uh, different weather patterns affect us. There are functional MRI studies that show it, it actually affects the metabolism of the brain quite directly. There are studies showing how it influences hormonal balance. So very powerful effects, very far-reaching. And we can tap into our common need for nature, but we can express that need in a way that's compatible with a, a wide variety of lifestyles. We've talked a lot about exercise and sleep and the, the benefits of that. Obviously, we've talked about diet, too. One of the things we haven't fully touched on is, or we've kind of danced around the topic of it, is stress. Can you, will you talk a little bit, Dr. Katz, about the connection between stress and, and mental health? Well, you know, I, I think in many ways, Barley, that's, that, it's the most obvious because you, the, the connections are somewhat indirect. You know, when you talk about exercise and mental health, you have to make the case that, you know, what's good for the body is good for the mind. But stress is a burden of the mind. Uh, you know, psychological stress, that, that's what it is. So the symptom is directly in the mind. And we're really talking about scratching an itch, you know, relieving a, an irritation of the mind. So, you know, the, the simple fact is that, that stress occupies the mind. It weakens our ability to focus on other things. It distracts us. And it reverberates through every aspect of the body, just like all these other influences. So, I, you know, I think one of the mistakes, we, we were talking before, Caroline, about sleep not getting enough respect. But, you know, I think in many quarters, stress doesn't get enough respect. You know, people kind of dismiss it and say, you know, it's, it's just purely, it, it, it's all in your head. As if, as if that's a disparagement. You know, there's some pretty important stuff in our heads, actually. Um, and there's no such thing as something affecting our mind that isn't affecting our brain. There's no such thing as psychology that isn't also biology. And so when we're stressed, you know, essentially it's stimulating the adrenal gland. The adrenal gland is releasing hormones. 
our stress hormones, our fight or flight hormones. It's releasing them at a lower level than if we were suddenly startled by a, a tiger or lion, um, but it's releasing them chronically. And those hormones in turn drive up levels of other hormones, um, create these cascades. It, it disrupts the, the normal pattern in our insulin. That in turn changes our appetite. That in turn changes our eating pattern. That in turn disrupts our metabolism. All of that can lead to difficulty sleeping. That can lead to sleep deprivation. That makes us more vulnerable to stress. This is crucial. Just like all of the good stuff is interconnected, so I can relieve my stress by exercising. And when I exercise and relieve my stress, I sleep better and feel better and eat better. It works in the other direction, too. When these things start falling apart, they can degrade one another. And you can find yourself sort of circling the drain where, you know, each thing makes everything else worse and down and down you go. You definitely want to reverse engineer that. And I think where that process begins differs for different people. That's certainly been my experience with patients over the years. I, I, one of the books I wrote uh, was called Disease Proof. And the final chapter was really all about a holistic view of health and, and how you could actually address health holistically in clinical practice. And I was saying that, you know, essentially we hear about holism and it, it's kind of a platitude as if, you know, somebody with a complex array of problems, they have type 2 diabetes and coronary disease and hypertension and chronic pain and chronic insomnia and lousy relationships and on and on it goes and bad diet and don't exercise. And, you know, there's no way to fix all of that in one fell swoop. We don't have a magic wand in medicine. What you have to do is sort of break that down into component parts and say, well, which is the one thing we're going to fix first, which will then empower us working together to move on and fix the next, the next. And that's really reverse engineering that downward spiral and turning it instead into a spiral staircase that leads one step at a time up to vitality. I think for many people, the bottom step is stress. I, you know, I think, I think constant daily stress is an erosion of physical health because it disrupts hormonal patterns and, and then it disrupts dietary patterns and you know it leads to hypertension and dyslipidemia and insulin resistance and all sorts of bad stuff. Uh, but it conspires against sleep, which conspires against energy, which conspires against exercise, which conspires against restraint, which means I'm not going to eat well, but you know, hand me that glass of wine and and then you drink too much and you know all of a sudden everything's broken. So you know it, it's crucial in the obvious way, stress is a burden on the brain, makes it hard to focus, makes it hard to be productive. But it's a terrible burden in an indirect way because stress conspires against all those other key elements in the lifestyle medicine formula. I, I think if we're going to leave listeners with a practical tip, it might be this, you know, to really to respect that, that full menu, everything that's on that menu, beat forks, fingers, sleep, stress, and love. So physical activity, dietary pattern, adequate sleep, managing stress, avoiding toxins, strong social connections, all of that, absolutely crucial to lifelong health and health of both body and mind. If you're not there, if you're not where you want to be, if you don't have the, the vitality, the, the balanced mood, the, the, the resilience to do well every day, one of the things you might really constructively do is think about which of those elements is most badly broken for me. Which of those things would I most like to fix if I could fix just one? 
and then find the help you need to focus on that. It could be whichever one matters most to you, whichever one feels like if I could fix that, I feel like I could tackle the others. And then pay it forward. Pay it forward to yourself. Use the, the wherewithal you get from fixing one of these to invest in fixing the next and fixing the next. And, and I really do believe that to one degree or another, all of us can climb that spiral staircase and get up to a loftier level of vitality than many of us enjoy. I love that approach. Um, I think so many people tend to take an all or nothing approach, which isn't successful. Um, I'm speaking of myself as well. Um, I'm including myself in that. But I love, I've never really thought of it this way. And I love that approach, starting with what's most badly broken and focus there. Because you're right, if you don't fix that, you're never going to be able to incorporate a balance of, of everything else. We all, we all care a lot about nutrition, I know, and, and spend a lot of our careers focused on that. I, I had many patients over the years who came to me specifically for dietary counseling. And you know, after extensive interaction, it was clear to me they already knew everything about healthy eating that I could possibly teach them. And at the end of all of that, however long all of that was, my question to them was, what the heck else is wrong in your life? Because it's not this. It's not lack of knowledge. You could do this. And if you're not doing it, it's something else. And the something else, you know, it could be huge. I mean, it could be a, a serious trauma in childhood. You know, it could be something they've never told anybody else. It could be a toxic marriage. It could be they hate their job. It could be their bosses harassing them. You know, it, it, it's anyway, it could be their kids are, are in desperate peril and, you know, using drugs or, or in jail. Or it, it, it's all sorts of things. Or it could be their terrible insomnia or their chronic pain or, you know, it goes on and on. But unless you get at that thing, you, you can never fix anything else. And, and nobody but you, it kind of reminds me of City Slickers. You know, if, you're, if those have seen that, that Billy Crystal movie, when Curly says there's just one thing in life. And, and, you know, what is the one thing? Well, you have to figure that out for yourself. Uh, you know, health is a little bit like that, too. So the, the formula, we're, we're, all, we're all family. We're all close cousins. We're all more alike than different. We really are. But we're also all different. And, and the things that wear us down are intrinsic to our personal experience. And, and everybody's personal experience is unique. So nobody will have the insights that you have into, you know, if there was just one thing I could fix that would really give me a boost, it would be blank. You have to fill in the blank. But then, by all means, you know, seek help. You deserve help. We all need somebody to lean on at times, as Bill Withers told us. So, you know, find the help you need so you can fix that first thing. Uh, and then say, ah, I feel better. I feel better enough that I can take on the second thing. And then again, the, you know, there the really is that luminous opportunity for all of us to climb some way up toward the vitality we all deserve. And, you know, my, my fervent wish is that everybody listening gets to the top uh, and enjoys the view up there. But I, I know we can all climb some portion of that way. Uh, and I, I do think, you know, sort of deconstructing what are the things weighing me down so I can systematically start to fix what's broken. I think that's an important part of the process. This was amazing. Yeah, I, I love talking to you, Dr. Katz, because not only do you give such great advice, but I mean, I have two pages of notes of, of awesome, awesome quotes from you. Yeah. And I don't want to say too much more because I think that you wrapped it up really, really beautifully. But 
one of the things that has really stuck with me over the years, and and I think it's you know it's great parting words, is that the goal. These are your words, but but the goal in life really is to add years to lives and life to years, and and it's very easy to lose sight of that. But everything that you packed in today's into today's episode touches on that in different ways, and and hopefully gives you know listeners the inspiration to start at their, you know, first step and fix what, you know, what is most broken for them. Well, I so appreciate the opportunity to have this conversation with both of you. So thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us for the Happy Eating Podcast. I'm Briarly Horton. And I'm Carolyn Williams. If you liked this week's episode, then don't forget to rate and leave us a review on iTunes and be sure to hit the subscribe button so you'll never miss a new episode. We can't wait to have you back at our table next week for a brand new episode. Bye. Bye. The contents discussed in the Happy Eating Podcast, such as advice, studies, text, graphics, images, and other material discussed or presented on the site or podcast are for informational purposes only. Content is not intended to be a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional or other qualified health providers with any questions you may have regarding your condition. Never disregard professional advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on the Happy Eating Podcast. If you are in crisis or think you may have an emergency, call your doctor or 911 immediately. If you're having suicidal thoughts, call 1-800-273-TALK, that's 8255, to talk to a skilled, trained counselor at the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. If you are located outside the United States, call your local emergency line immediately.